you pray with me before we look to God's word? Our Father, we, your children, now look to your word for guidance, for instruction, and for our very life. We acknowledge that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, come, test our thoughts, discern our ways, see if there be in us anything grievous to you, and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm 2. That's page 448, if you're using the black Bibles we've provided for you. Psalm 2. Pastor Nick introduced us last week to Psalm 1, he, and by doing so, he introduced us to the entire Psalter. We saw that Psalm 1 was a gateway into the entire book of Psalms. And it's the same with Psalm 2. It's sort of the gateway part 2. Psalm 1 begins with blessing. Blessed is the man, right? Psalm 2 ends with blessing. Blessed are those. So these are bookends, two gates that we need to go through in order to get the most out of the Psalms and understand what the Lord wants us to understand from these Psalms. So it's Psalm 2. Listen to God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a world that is both viciously and visibly hostile to the Christian faith. I don't know about you, but I can hardly bear sometimes to read the headlines these days. Boko Haram, of course, has declared war on Christianity in Africa. ISIS is hunting down and graphically killing those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. 
the headlines are tragic and seemingly relentless. But the hostility doesn't manifest itself merely in terms of physical violence. In the Western world, the hostility against Christianity manifests itself mainly in the realm of ideas, doesn't it? I read an article this past week in The American Conservative, which stated that, according to recent statistics, Christianity in the United Kingdom will be extinct by the year 2067. Not a trace. And even in our own nation, namely in our Supreme Court, the rule and commandments of God are being thrown out again and again and again in favor of newer and more progressive ideas. And these thoughts frighten us, don't they? These thoughts cause us to be concerned for the future. Will our lives be safe? Will our children be safe? Will our churches be secure? Will the Christian faith itself prosper? We dwell on these headlines, and if we're not careful, we can fall deep into despair and even fear, can't we? But our psalm for today gives us a different headline. This psalm tells us that in spite of all the turmoil in our world today, you and I can be confident that God is in control. God is in control. The psalmist assures us, uh, he tells us not to fear. He assures us that all rebellion against God and against his people will one day be totally squashed. You and I can be confident that God is in control. This psalm can be divided into four sections, three verses each, pretty evenly. Uh, and these four sections build upon each other and provide us, in the end, with a rock-solid foundation for being unshakably confident in God. So we'll take this psalm section by section. First, in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist describes the nation's rebellion. The nation's rebellion. And he tells us that all human rebellion against God is futile. It's useless. Notice how the psalmist begins. The psalmist begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist asks, why? Not because he's worried or even remotely curious, but because he is utterly astonished. <laughs> why do the nations even bother to rebel against God. The word rage in this verse uh, describes a noisy assembly that a group of thieves might make as they plan their next crime. I can't help but think of one of the opening scenes of the second recent Batman movie, The Dark Knight, when all of the mobsters of Gotham City are secretly gathered around a table in an abandoned kitchen, and they're collaborating with one another on how they might kill the Batman. 
And this sort of collaboration is exactly what we see in verse 2, isn't it? The psalmist goes on to say, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Now, what on earth would cause these kings and rulers, who were formerly at odds with one another, to join forces? And the answer is a common enemy. The remainder of verse 2 tells us that these kings and rulers are against the Lord and against his anointed or his chosen king. Now, who is this king? Well, that's a good question. In the immediate context, the king, the Lord's anointed, is David, king of Israel. But ultimately, of course, the Lord's anointed is Jesus Christ, God's chosen king. That's what the name Christ means. It's not his last name, it's a title, sort of like president or king. Did the nations ever rage against him? You bet they did. In fact, the earliest Christians in the book of Acts understood this psalm, Psalm 2, to have been fulfilled in the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Listen to their prayer from Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. These early believers pray, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? Notice this past tense now. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in the next verse, they describe what this psalm was ultimately talking about. They say, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and, sadly, the peoples of Israel. They're part of the nations now. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So you see, the application of this psalm cannot be limited to just one point in time. The nations were enraged in David's day. The nations were enraged in Jesus' day. And the nations are still enraged in our day. What are they so mad about? The psalmist tells us in verse 3, these kings and rulers set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, here's their rallying cry, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations hate being ruled by the Lord and his anointed. They find his commandments to be unbearably oppressive and restrictive and intolerant. So they make a plan. Let's revolt. Let's rebel. Let's rule ourselves. 
Does that sound familiar? The truth is, all of us are rebels at heart. We want to be free from God's rules. All this Bible talk, we say. All these rules, these restrictions and constraints. What a killjoy God is. But when we say that, we're adopting the language of these rebellious nations, aren't we? We're sort of showing our sinful heritage, aren't we? After all, most of us in this room are Gentiles. But the psalmist says that all such attempts to rebel against God, whether by us or by kings and rulers, are in the end in vain. We are powerless against the all-powerful God. When we rebel against God, it indicates that we've forgotten how small and insignificant we are in comparison with Him. Put our existence to scale with the grandness of God's universe. Listen to this information from NASA's website. If we were to reduce the size of our Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions and billions and billions of other galaxies, if we were to reduce the size of our tiny Milky Way galaxy to the size of North America, the size of our solar system would be comparable to that of a quarter. Our sun would be 30 times smaller than a grain of sand. And the earth would be microscopic, which is an understatement, isn't it? And God created all of it. We consider the greatness of our galaxy and our, and our head spin. We think about our puny existence in comparison to this great, all-powerful creator God, and we are driven to exclaim to him with the psalmist elsewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him? But when we think of our rebellion against this same great, all-powerful creator God, we should exclaim to him, what is man that he should rebel against you? We are nothing, and yet we set ourselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But it's in vain. A ladybug has a greater chance at overthrowing a full-speed 18-wheeler than you and I have at overthrowing the sovereign plan of God. Even the most impressive, collaborative human effort to go against God is like an army of ants taking on an army of tanks. But that's exactly what we attempt when we sin, don't we? All sin is against the Lord and against his anointed. We want to rule ourselves. But it won't work. To think it will is irrational. Because all human rebellion against God is utterly in vain. So how does the Lord respond to this rebellion? All the nations are opposed to him. What does he do? Well, in verses 4 through 6, the psalmist describes the Lord's reaction 
to human rebellion. The Lord's reaction to human rebellion. And we find, not surprisingly, that God is not threatened in the least by it. The psalmist tells us in verse 4 that the Lord is amused at these petty attempts at rebellion. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God doesn't even get up. He remains seated on his heavenly throne, completely undisturbed. He laughs at these nations. He holds them in derision, or he mocks them. Now, initially, the Lord's reaction might bother us if we think about it. The nations are rebelling against him. The peoples are persecuting those who follow his anointed. Boko Haram and ISIS are slaughtering Christians all around the world, and God laughs? But God doesn't laugh because he thinks their violence is funny. No, God laughs because he is furious. I remember watching the NBA with my dad when I was little. We liked to watch the Chicago Bulls. And I remember how every time Scottie Pippen would get a foul called against him, he'd be smiling and running down the court. And this happened over and over again. And finally, I just asked my dad, I'm like seven, why is he smiling? (laughs) He's about to foul out. He actually just got sent to the bench. Why is he smiling? And I remember my dad said, Groot, he's not smiling because he thinks it's funny. He's smiling because he's angry. And that's exactly what our Lord is doing. In verse 4. And in his burning fury, he speaks. Verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The truth is. God has already responded to the nation's rebellion, hasn't he? God has appointed a king. And God has vested this king with authority to judge the nations and the peoples on his behalf. The plan is working out. Remember what Acts 4 said. When, even when they crucified Jesus, they said, this was to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's just working out. And God says, ha ha. So God has installed a king. But who is this king? Who is this king? In verses 7 through 9, there's a change in voice. And we hear for ourselves the king's confidence in God's plan. The king's confidence In God's plan. Listen to what the king says. In verse 7, the king expresses his unshakable confidence in God's decree or his promise. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now Christians, be patient here. 
it would be very easy, wouldn't it, for us to uh, apply this passage directly to Jesus Christ and neglect what this psalm, this passage meant to its original audience. And I'm telling you, we're going to get there, but be patient. Let's understand first what the original meaning was, and then we'll see how it applies ultimately to Jesus. In this verse, King David proclaims that the Lord had made a promise to him. Now, what promise is he referring to? Well, certainly he's referring to the promise the Lord had made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord had told the prophet Samuel that David's throne would last forever and ever. From generation to generation, king to king, the throne would never be usurped. But the Lord had also told Samuel in verse 14 that he would be a father to David. He said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, what does that mean? It means that the Lord had given to David all the rights and privileges of a son as king of the universe. The Lord had adopted David, the king of Israel, into his royal family and granted him full authority to judge and rule the nations on his behalf. Israel was to be the center. And the next phrase in Psalm 2 tells us when the Lord made David his son, when he adopted his son. Today, I have begotten you, or today... I have become your father. Now, when was today for David? Well, um, it was the day when he became king. On David's coronation day, David was crowned and exalted as king, and he sat on his throne on Mount Zion as the rightful ruler of the whole world, God's anointed king, God's son. But David died, didn't he? And his son Solomon took up his throne. But Solomon died, didn't he? And Rehoboam took up his throne. And Rehoboam died, didn't he? And, and on and on and on and on. So that we now must ask today, July, June 14th, who is God's anointed king? Who is God's son? And the answer is Jesus. He is the greater David. He is the true king. He is God's eternal son. Now hang with me. When we say that Jesus is God's son, we do not mean simply that he is, uh, as the Nicene Creed says, eternally begotten of the Father. We mean that, but we don't just mean that. Uh, me meaning that he was, he's always been God's son. Nor do we mean simply that he is the incarnate son of the Virgin Mary, meaning that he became a human son in time. We do mean that. But when we say that Jesus is God's son, there's a third way that we can mean he is God's son. Paul tells us in Romans 1, 3 through 4, 
that Jesus is God's son by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says that the gospel is concerning God's Son. Just notice the overlapping language here. Concerning God's Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus, then, is God's Son, God's anointed king, whose reign, unlike David's, unlike Solomon's, would not end in death, will not end in death, because he's been resurrected from the dead. And as George Handel wrote in his opera, Messiah, and he shall reign forever. He is God's king. Look at what God the Father has promised him in verses 8 and 9. His father tells him, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The whole world belongs to King Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples on the day of his ascension? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Church family, why do we go to Uganda? Why do we support Peter and Degwa in Kenya? It's because we have been charged to introduce the whole world to their true king. Jesus sends us to the ends of the earth to inform the nations of God's plan and to usher them in to God's rule. But listen, we can start in our own rebellious nation. There's plenty of opposition to God's rule in our own country, in our own city, in our own neighborhood, in our own home. And guess what? Even in our own hearts. And King Jesus tells us to get to work. So what should we do? What is King Jesus calling us to do? And that brings us to our fourth and final section of this psalm. In verses 10 through 12, we see the psalmist's warning. The psalmist warns us and everyone everywhere to repent from our rebellion and return to the Lord and to his anointed king. The psalmist tells us to do four things. First, we are to be wise. Children, you learned about being wise this past week in vacation Bible school, didn't you? Be wise. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. The Lord is king. Stop your rebellion. Lay down your weapons. It's for your own good. So be wise with the time. Second, we are to worship the Lord. Verse 11, serve or worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Think of this humbling privilege. In worship, our Lord invites us into his terrifying presence and calls us 
to stand in awe of his majesty. But our fear of coming into his presence shouldn't scare us away. It should give us joy. It should add to the thrill. When I was younger, I had the opportunity to tour the crater of a volcano. Anybody else stupid enough to do that in here? And I remember how fearful I was. I thought this volcano could erupt at any moment and I could be toast. But did that stop me? No way. I enjoyed every minute of it. The fear added to my joy. In the same way, our Lord is full of wrath and could erupt at any moment, yet he promises not to harm us. He promises to give us joy, but we must come now, right now. Is he calling you? Third, we are to kiss God's son. Kiss God's son. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Jesus' arms are opened now. He's ready to receive you. Come to him. Embrace him. Kiss the son and kiss him quickly. Finally, notice how the psalm ends. The psalmist concludes by urging us to take refuge in the Son. He writes, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What does it mean to take refuge in Jesus? It means to trust Him. It means to hide yourself in Him from the punishment you deserve. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, that is, by taking refuge in him, by hiding ourselves in him, by trusting him. My friend, take refuge in Jesus. He will forgive your rebellion. That's what he came to do. Come to him. Come and receive his blessing. Psalm 2 echoes the message of Psalm 1, doesn't it? If you recall from last week. There are only two ways to live. Either we can live for ourselves and expect God's unmitigated punishment. Or we can live for Christ and expect God's blessing. Which way have you chosen? Have you rejected God and gone your own way? Have you set yourself against the Lord and against his anointed? Repent. Stop your rebellion. Turn around and return to the Lord. Who like a loving father has left the porch light on. For his wayward children. 
come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory for the great things he has done. Blessed are all who take refuge in God's anointed King and Son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided for us the safest of shelters in the storm. We have a strong helper, a savior, a friend who is God, Jesus our Savior, who saves us from the wrath to come. And Lord, we thank you that you have not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And you have promised us through the Lord Jesus that everyone who comes to him, he will not turn away. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, your arms are open wide. We thank you that as you command us to come and kiss your feet, we kiss nail prints. We kiss the feet of one who walked the hill of Golgotha to the cross and took our punishment as our suffering and crucified king. What a savior we have in you, Lord Jesus. Work in this place. Work in us. Call people to yourself. Do this for your own glory, Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing. I'll be down at the front. Uh, we don't do this very often, do we? Be down at the front, uh, standing if you'd like to give your life to Christ. If you've noticed that you've lived your life against the Lord and against his anointed, Christ welcomes you with open arms this morning. And I'd love to walk you through that uh, if that should be your decision as the Spirit leads. So sing, and I'll be down at the front.